Um, If you would join me in John chapter 3, we continue our study of the gospel according to John. John chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 22 through 30 today. Uh, I'll be teaching from the ESV. Um, If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. Uh, One of our ushers will bring you a Bible. We have some in the back. Feel free to uh, go grab one if you need one. But we would encourage you to uh, look at God's Word for yourself. We don't put it on the screen because we think it's important uh, for you to uh, have an understanding and to to find the Word of God and passages. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, uh, the Gospel of John is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, the big numbers are the chapters, uh, the little numbers are the verses. So John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, I'm going to read this for us, and uh, then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. John three twenty-two. would we hear the words of God? After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Join me as we ask God's help. Father, it is a great joy to be with your people this morning. Father, as you have called us out of the world to be identified as Christ's followers, and you have given us instruction through your word, help us to be people that are obedient to what you teach us. Father, we need your help today. We need to be transformed. We need our minds renewed, and that is only through the power of your spirit. Father, would you help those that walked in heavy laden, burdened by the weight of their sin, those that may not profess Christ, would you help them today to see the answer to their discomfort, their lostness, their darkness in Jesus Christ? Would you humble those that may have walked in thinking that they have got it all together and that they need nothing? Would you help them to see their great need for a Savior, would they see that in Jesus Christ? Father, we ask that what we know not, you would teach us, and what we are not, you would make us, and what we have not, you would give us by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name. God's people said, 
Amen. There's a pervasive idea in our day and age which says your value and worth are based on recognition for what you do. This idea equates recognition with joy and paints the picture which says the more recognition you get, the more joy you will have. See, we live in a society that places heavy emphasis on stardom and celebrity. There are countless TV shows that exist to identify the next big star that will be famous for one thing or the other. Likewise, there's an endless supply of movies perpetuating the idea that a person indeed finds meaning and happiness in life only through recognition of one's true self. Nowhere do we see the idea of being recognized as a source of joy than in social media. Social media has capitalized this, on this idea by providing each and every person with their own platform to show why their lives are worthy of being noticed. Sure, there are ways to use social media in a healthy manner, but studies have shown that most often social media only contributes to the fact that most people live with an overwhelming fear that they may not even be aware of, the fear of obscurity. See, we fear being unnoticed. We fear being unrecognized. We fear being unimportant or unappreciated even for what we do. And with the rise of social media that allows each person to express themselves and get recognition that they deserve, surely studies will show that there is more joy in the world, right? Well, unfortunately, that's not the case. Studies show that this newfound ability to gain recognition has only led to higher rates of depression, higher rates of suicide. Unfortunately, oftentimes what people think they need is actually what leads to their destruction. So where do we find joy? Is it that we need recognition, that we need to be recognized for what we are and what we do. In our text today, we see something different. We're taught something that goes against the idea that joy is found in greater recognition. We are taught that it is actually obscurity, being unnoticed and wanting to, to, to be in the non-limelight that brings true joy. The title of the sermon is the joy of obscurity. And as we walk through this story, we, we're going to pay very close attention to really why John added this portion to his testimony. Uh, once again, John has brought John the Baptist back into the picture. Uh, he's given us some specific details to his ministry now that Jesus Christ has arrived on the scene. And in verses 22 through 24, uh, they really paint the scene for us. Like any great author, John is setting the stage to help us get a better picture of what is happening here 
in this story. Look at verse 22 through 24 with me. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples, they went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Let's look at what's going on here in this scene. So Jesus and his disciples have moved on from Jerusalem to the countryside of Judea. In other words, they left the urban, the the city, and now they've moved to the country, the rural part of the world. Now, we don't really get any specifics on the timeline here. Uh, We don't know exactly what happened between uh, verse 22 uh, and 21 and 22. All we know is that the text tells us that they have gone. They've moved along here. And the reason they are here is because they are baptizing people. And this place apparently has plenty of water, enough water that John the Baptist is doing it as well. So they're in the same area. Uh, It's obvious that they can see each other from the text because later on he says, look over there. So we see this picture of John the Baptist and his group, Jesus and his group, his disciples, baptizing. Now, I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but we do need to recognize that Jesus is not actually baptizing people himself. Uh, At first read, it sounds like he is, right? It says Jesus was baptizing people. But a general rule to apply when studying Scripture is to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And we see later on in verse uh, 2 of chapter 4, a little bit down, John tells us that what? Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So Jesus isn't physically baptizing anyone himself. So the scene is set here. Jesus' disciples are baptizing. John the Baptist is baptizing. They're in the same area of Judea that has plenty of water. And this is before John the Baptist goes to prison, which gives us a little indication here of the timeline. And as the narrative unfolds, there are three things that I want us to take note of as we focus on the theme and the heading here, the joy of obscurity. Three things we're going to notice. One, a common dilemma. A common dilemma. Two, the proper perspective. The proper perspective. Three, we'll see the proper response. Proper response. Let's look first at the common dilemma here in verse 25, verses 25 and 26. So the scene is set, and then we read, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So what is going on here that makes this a common dilemma that we are all faced with at times? Well, we see that there is this argument taking place. The argument here is centered around purification, 
Now, this disagreement is likely with an unbelieving Jew who is still looking to the ceremonial laws of purification of Judaism as a means for their salvation. It's probable that he has been an observer of John the Baptist's ministry. And now that Jesus has arrived on the scene, the, doing the same thing that John the Baptist has built his ministry around, now this man is kind of throwing shots, right? He, he's pointing out some things that are similar, similar in form. And he's asking John the Baptist's disciples, his followers, like, hey, what's going on here? He's instigating. He's instigating the situation by asking which baptism is superior. Is it your guy John or is it Jesus Christ, the new guy who's just stepped on the scene? John the Baptist's disciples are obviously a little flustered here. They're upset that their leader's ministry is now being eclipsed by Jesus. So they go to John the Baptist and they say, look at the man you spoke about. Look, remember, look at what he's doing. The, the person you've been pointing to, now he's come to take away your ministry. He's attention grabbing. He's stealing your limelight, John. Like, what are you going to do about it? They're probably thinking, right, like, you're the man. You're the man, John the Baptist. Remember all that you have been doing, all the people that you have influenced, the difference you have made in the lives of so many people. They're probably thinking like, hey, we're your followers. We, we want you to have the limelight. Don't let someone steal it. They essentially tell John, like, hey, you, you need recognition. You need recognition here. Now, why is this a common dilemma? Because there is often an overwhelming voice within us that tells us we need to be recognized. There's often something inside of us and also outside of us that says, hey, you need recognition. Sometimes it's people in our relational spheres, right? Maybe that's, you got that friend that kind of gives you that like, oh, you're just underappreciated and you just need more recognition, right? Like people just need to, they need to recognize all the great things that you do and they allow you, they, they kind of throw you rather a pity party and allow you to just sulk in your non-unrecognizable uh, state. Maybe some people on the outskirts that you've allowed to have influence in your life. Maybe those that you follow on social media that, you know, tell you that, you know, it's, it's everyone else's fault, that you don't matter, or whatever else these uh, gurus are, are spreading these days. Uh, maybe it's uh, celebrities or songs or entertainment that you've allowed to, to manipulate your mind into thinking that you're only going to be happy if you get notice for who you are and what you do. But if we're honest, most often it's ourselves. It's right here. It's the inner fight of my flesh saying, like, they didn't recognize you there. 
Uh, did, did your wife realize that you were holding the baby for so long? Did, did she notice that you, you put the dishes away? Did, did she notice these things? And if she didn't, shame on her. The temptation to seek recognition has been evident since the beginning of time. There are numerous warnings in Scripture to those who arrogantly seek recognition for themselves. Uh, Proverbs 18.12 is a great reminder for us as we read, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. The Apostle Paul tells the church in Philippi, in Philippians 2.3, he says, Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I don't see any asterisks. There, there is no like, well, what about, what about? That's the way we're called to live. And this is concerning our fellow man. This is concerning those to which we live with, to which we are in community with. I mean, how much more does this apply when we're talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? So here, John the Baptist is faced with this dilemma. He's faced with a dilemma that we're all familiar with, and he's forced to answer the question, like, what am I going to do when I'm on the brink of obscurity? I'm on the brink here of obscurity. Do I fight for recognition? Do I think of another way, the next best thing, the next big thing to stay relevant? Do I, do I smear my competition? I mean, it's very easy for us to do that, right? To throw little shots here and there to when someone else is being honored or we can very easily find a way to dishonor that person for one reason or the other. As we know, John the Baptist doesn't do any of these things. In fact, he does just the opposite. Look at verses 27 through 28. As we see, the proper perspective is actually what paves the way for the proper response. Verse 27, John answered. So here's John's response here. Here's his response to what's going on. He says, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Let's stop there. Here we see John the Baptist gives an uh, aphorism that provides the proper perspective in all situations that present the temptation to seek recognition. Now, an aphorism is uh, kind of a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a phrase that would contain a general truth or principle. Uh, for example, actions speak louder than words. There's a general truth that is presented here. So here by saying a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven, 
John the Baptist is literally stating the fact that God is sovereign over every single element in life. Everything. In other words, John the Baptist is saying, God sovereignly planned for me to play a role in redemptive history in a particular way. He says, everything I am and everything I have is done all because, guess who decided? God decided it would be that way. All of me. My place in this story is God-placed. Listen, brothers and sisters, we are not the heroes. We are not the point. It's all about Jesus. And if God chooses to use us in a particular way, praise be to God. Amen? Amen. He goes on to remind them that he has been telling them this all along. It's like, hey, this isn't new news. This isn't something that just, like, I just came up with. He says, you were there when I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He says, remember? He's like recalling to their memory, like, hey, remember what I've been telling you all along? He basically says, like, I've been preparing you for this all this time. I I knew that this was my lot. And I am actually very thankful for my lot. I'm grateful to be used no matter how God chooses to use me. Brothers and sisters, we must stop and ask ourselves, is this our perspective? Do we have the mindset of John the Baptist? Or do we oftentimes wish that God would have given us a little something different? little something different than what we have. Maybe a different moment in history. Maybe a different situation that we could handle in different ways. Maybe it's different looks, different skills. There's always something different that we can imagine. The famous 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal, write his name down if you're not familiar with him. But he once wrote, I quote, Of all the creatures in the world, man is at the same time the creature of highest grandeur and of the worst misery. And here's the reason why. He has the ability to contemplate a better existence than he presently enjoys. Think about that for a moment. You can always think about something better than what's currently happening. Something better than where God has him in that moment. I mean, let's be honest. It's very true for us. Maybe you're picturing a cooler sanctuary that's not so hot right now. Maybe you're picturing a different life that if the Lord would have just given you this life, this opportunity, oh, you would have capitalized on it by now. But here we read that John the Baptist demonstrates a measure of humility and submission to the exact situation that God has placed him in. 
His perspective is one that says, God has given me all that I have, and there's nothing that I have that God has not given me. This is Paul's reminder to the church in Corinth as he writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, for who sees anything different in you? He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Brothers and sisters, we are receivers from God. And as receivers, we must accept whatever he gives to us, knowing that what he gives us is always what is best. See, when faced with the temptation to seek recognition, we must be reminded of the fact that anything we do or anything we have is all on account of God's sovereign plan. Look, some may have a large platform. John the Baptist once had a large platform. Some may have more influence than others. Some will have family and neighbors. Nobody will ever notice. No one will ever show recognition, give them an award for an outstanding citizen, But regardless, let us be content with where God has us, eagerly serving as ones that serve God himself. Is that what not God, what not God calls us to do? Recall to your mind Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. And not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And then Paul says, you are serving the Lord Christ. Take courage today that your work is not in vain, no matter what you're doing. Your platform, your influence, your recognition is seen by God. It's given by God. And this is the proper perspective. It is a perspective that acknowledges that everything comes from God. And because of that, we will treat them accordingly. We see that the proper perspective lays the groundwork for a proper response. A perspective is what you think, right? A response is what you do, how you respond to something. So, we must be people that think right thinking leads to right actions, right? Right believing. So here we see the proper response. Look at verses 29 through 30 with me. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And the old so famous, he must increase, but I must decrease. So John the Baptist here gives us a little short parable that explains his role in redemptive history. He says, 
I'm just a friend of the groom. I'm not the bridegroom himself. In ancient Judean weddings, uh, the friend of the bridegroom would be equivalent to the best man uh, of today. Um, But in this time, the best man had an immense responsibility of proceeding over the wedding. He had a, a major role in the wedding to ensure that things went well. He organized the wedding. He sent out the invitations. He oversaw the wedding feast. He made sure that everything went as planned. And his main job, the point of his role, was to ensure that the bride and the groom ended up together at the end of the festivities. That was the goal. That was the purpose. Now, we all know that a wedding day is meant to be a particularly special day for the bride and groom. It isn't about the bridal party, the parents, the guests, anyone else. The focus is on the bride and the groom making a covenant before God to join in holy matrimony. They're representing Christ and his church, which we will see here in a moment. Weddings are meant to be joyful occasions. It's a celebration of these two people coming together. It's joyous. And it's a celebration of love and commitment. One thing that most people know is that you, you don't do anything on a couple's wedding day to, to steal the limelight, right? You know, like don't be that guy that proposes to his fiance at your buddy's wedding. Don't do that. That's a bad idea. All right, don't try to outdress the bride, ladies. Like, that's a bad idea. Let them have their day, their time. I mean, these things are especially true for the best man, the, the maid of honor. Carried here in this time a major role. He carried the responsibility to make sure the groom's day went well. And that the groom ended up with his bride. Here we see John the Baptist paint this picture of himself as one that was sent in the same manner. And why this illustration, right? Like, why a wedding? Why a bride and a groom? You may, might be familiar with Ephesians chapter 5, but if you have your Bible, turn over there with me real quick. And let's, let's read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. Ephesians chapter 5, just a refresher to our minds of what this represents here. Good refresher and reminder to the husbands in the room as well. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 reads, Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. You've probably heard that at a wedding ceremony. The two shall become one flesh. And then he gives us this in verse 32. What does he say here? The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So who is the groom? Jesus Christ. And who is the bride? The church. Christians. You and me, those that have believed in Jesus Christ. So we see here the profundity of this parable. John the Baptist is saying, I have one job as a follower of Jesus. And that job is to do whatever I can to ensure that Jesus Christ, the groom, receives his bride, the church. He says, it isn't about me. It is all about Jesus. Look at what he says at the end of 29. He says, the joy of mine is complete. Or in other words, I find great joy in deflecting the limelight to, so that the proper star can shine. I think this is why uh, John, the writer, uh, adds and brings John the Baptist back here, right? I mean, John the Baptist has really given us some real insight into Christian joy here. He's essentially telling us that joy is found in stepping out of the limelight, in embracing obscurity, of not demanding recognition for whatever it is that we do. He's saying here that recognition is not the most important thing in life. The only legacy worth leaving is a legacy that is built on making much of Jesus in every situation. He ends this portion of Scripture by saying, He must increase and I must decrease. I mean, what a response. Here, John the Baptist galvanizes his point that it is all about Jesus. The reason why is because he knew who Jesus was. He knew what Jesus came to accomplish. He knew that Jesus Christ was the only hope for the world, not him. It wasn't what he was doing. He was just pointing to Jesus all along. Remember what he says in chapter 1, verse 29. What does he say there? Behold the Lamb of God. He, he points to Jesus. And what does he say? Who takes away the sin of the world. See, whether you know it or not, man's greatest need is to have their sins removed. We are all guilty. We need the true purification to be reconciled to our creator. And God sent Jesus Christ in order to provide a means for reconciliation. 
Jesus died the death that you and I deserve. He took the punishment for our sin, absorbing the wrath we are due. But praise be to God, he didn't stay dead. God affirmed his payment by raising Jesus from the dead. And now he lives as God, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people. That's why we corporately confess Because guess what? We have someone who is interceding for us. Jesus is continually mediating on our behalf. The Bible teaches us that all who confess their sins and repent, placing their faith in Jesus Christ as the only perfect redeemer, can have and will have eternal life with God. John the Baptist knew this. And he didn't just talk about it. He lived it. His life was marked by a commitment to obscurity. It wasn't about him. It was always about Jesus Christ. Listen, no amount of recognition can ever bring everlasting joy. Man's praise is fleeting. It is quickly Fleeting. I look back at some of the things that I used to do, some of the trends that I used to follow, and I am just embarrassed. I mean, these things come and go so quick. Here today, gone tomorrow. And brothers and sisters, it is is only when we submit to God's sovereign plan for our lives and remain faithful wherever he puts us for Christ's sake that we will find joy. It's not about us. It's all about him. A couple questions you can ask yourself today as we close our time. Am I seeking recognition? Am I seeking recognition? Is my life about me or is my life about Christ? Am I committed to making Jesus known or making myself known? Am I more concerned with building my own following or helping others follow Christ? Many may not know this, but the great theologian John Calvin was a man who eagerly sought to live an obscure life. Even after his writings caught major attention and admiration, John Calvin was a man who was committed to, I quote, studiously avoiding celebrity. He didn't want any of his writings and his teachings to even to, to gain popularity. He tried to, when he would go places, he would try to actually uh, to say, like, it's, it's not me. I didn't write that. I didn't do uh, those things. He writes This in his greatest work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, and it's a quote that I want to leave us with as we close our time. And he says, I quote, we are gods. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are gods. Let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We are gods. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive 
toward him as our only lawful goal. End quote. Brothers and sisters, my prayer, my hope is that we would be a people resolved to live according to this glorious truth. That we would be okay with a life of obscurity, trusting that it is God who sees what we do. And because of Christ, our works will be counted righteous in him and him alone. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious truth that Christ Jesus came to save. That is only through Jesus that we could ever obtain the right standing that you demand. Lord, help us to live as ambassadors for that glorious news. Let us be people that proclaim the excellence of Jesus and never to be people who boast in our own work. Lord, as you move us around in this world to do whatever you would have us to do, to play our part in redemptive history, let us be a people that give you thanks in all things. Wherever you have us, may we be faithful. May we always point people to the root of our faithfulness, Jesus Christ himself. It's in his name I pray. Amen.